What we didn't hear in this morning's gospel lesson was the, the scene that immediately precedes it. It's a feast given in the king's palace. Herod, the, the, the king, is having this birthday celebration. And it's a, it's a gathering of his closest friends and, and people who um, are looking for, obviously looking for um, some sort of advantage in, in the, uh, the, the world of the powerful. But imagine a king's feast. We know that there's at least one dancing girl there. There are people who are there watching and, and feasting and eating. And Herod becomes um, filled with wine and, and filled with himself. And, and he sees this beautiful young woman dancing. And he, um, he makes an offer to her, a bold offer. Ask whatever you want. Up to half of my kingdom. It's a scene of, of, of wealth and opulence and and, um, and, you know, everything that, that goes along with power. And the wo- young woman asks for the head of a, of a preacher, a prophet, a man named John, who was calling out her mother and, and, and the king for their, their lewd behavior. And, and she asked for his head to be delivered on a platter. Plenty of food, plenty of drink, plenty of entertainment. Let's add one more level to that. The head of a preacher on a platter. A a, a plate meant to hold food. um, Grotesque by this offering. And so this scene is this lavish party, this excess, and also this murderous um, uh, scene that happens as well. When Jesus hears this, this is how the, the, the lesson begins. When Jesus hears about this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. When he heard about this, he pulls away. Um, I, I wondered why he pulled away. I mean, it's emotional, isn't it? When you, John the Baptist is his cousin, but more than that, he's a preacher of righteousness. He is a faithful follower of God. And in this community, he's proclaiming righteousness and he's murdered. And I imagine in Jesus there's this sense of frustration, of displeasure, anger, sadness, all the sorts of things that would go along with that. Yesterday I, I had to officiate at a funeral uh, for a friend of mine. And, um, and I hadn't seen this man in, in a number of years. But the sadness of the loss of life, he was only 55 And so uh, to pass away so young, all the things that kind of go with that, sadness and frustration and anger. But the crowd follows. I mean, he gets in a boat to go to a desolate place and the crowd follows him. An enormous crowd follows. I mean, have you ever just wanted to get away? You know, and you, you you get away and you finally get to that desolate place. You get to that place of retreat. Uh, you know, this is the way, I don't know about you, this is me. This is how I deal with stress. I, I have to draw away. I have to get alone. I have to get quiet. And and I have to set, reset this sort of internal sense of, of contemplation and peace. And, and so when I do that... And then my phone rings and it's, you, you know, I hope you're having a good retreat. But let me just tell you, we ran out of communion wine. <laughs> you can't figure this one out, right? And, and this is Jesus. He's pulled away at a time of, of, of serious internal conflict and the crowd follows. 
Why? Why do they pull away? Why do they follow? Because they're also needy. They also need something. They also need to um, to have some reason for hope. And and there are lots of needs. They've been bringing their sick to Jesus, and he's fled away. They're taking their sick with them, aren't they? they? You can't get away that easily. Think how different these two scenes are. Matthew intentionally juxtaposes these scenes. One, a scene of lavish wealth and plenty and opulence and decadence. And the other, the scene of, of paltriness, of neediness, of having not enough. And they sit them, he sits them side by side. The people may think that there's not enough. But with Christ, there is always enough. Always enough. And the first thing is, is that, that there's enough time. That he has enough time for them. He's pulled away. He's intentionally going to another place. He wants to be, in a, you know, alone, a desolate place. And yet they follow. You would think that he would say to you people not have homes, you know, go to your homes. I'll catch you in Capernaum in a week, you know, meet me there. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that to them at all. He takes his time with them. I remember years ago um, reading this uh, book on pastoral ministry and it was about about pastoral integrity. And and Eugene Peterson, the author, he says, sometimes you only have five minutes to give to a person. And that's okay, But give them those five minutes. You know, there's sometimes when we're pressed, when there's so much going on, we think, "Eh, I only got three minutes, you know, but we waste that whole three minutes. No. Give them that time. And Christ gives them the time. He takes time to heal their sick. They're bringing them their, their sick and he's healing them. He takes time to meet their needs. I think for us, it may say a lot of things about. But it says this, that God has time for us. Now, of course, God stands outside of time. There is no time with God. Of course, he has time for us. But that we matter, that our needs matter, that there is no limit to the importance of our needs in the economy of God. That he cares about us and takes time to to enter into our lives and enter into our, our needs. Uh, there's this um, there's this movie I've recommended. It. It, it might be odd that you think that I would recommend this film, but there's a film called Bruce Almighty where this guy, this comedian, um, somehow gets a hold of God and he gets the opportunity to be God and to have God-like powers. And he doesn't know how to use them. He's completely inadequate to the task, but he loves it. You know, um, all the sort of things that you would think you might do if you had God powers. You know, make yourself, uh, you know, all the sort of uh, creature comforts that you would want. And um, and the, the prayers that go to God come into his email and all of a sudden, like his email is just exploding, you know, and and so he just answers yes to all, you know, kind of go up and let's answer yes to all and get out of here and go have fun. And um, and eventually, you know, at one point, um, God, who's, who's played by Morgan Freeman, meets him and he's like, and these these prayer requests are overwhelming. And the God character says, I only gave you the prayer request between like 8 and 14th Street. You know, I didn't even give you all of them. That's just a little bit. I think it was really funny because it says to me that sometimes we we say in, in casual conversation, I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. All the things that God has to do, this is the last thing he's worried about. 
I'm not that important. I'm not that, I'm not that high on his priority scale. No, you are that high. God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent in all places at all time, all powerful, all knowing, and yet still has time for us. Still has time for you and for me. There's enough time for God and for us. Christ also has enough compassion, doesn't he? He looks on the people, verse 14, he sa- um, the writer says, um, uh, when he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great ca- crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion. They ruined his retreat, but he had compassion on them. He understood why they ruined his retreat. They needed him. And he had compassion for them. Um, I was one time when I was a seminary student, I was doing this project. Um, and the project was a, a video. I, I interviewed uh, different clergy people, asking them a question um, about, uh, about a statement. It was in a class for, on, on the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And there's this point where Bonhoeffer says um, that, that preaching becomes the word of God even more than the written word because it's put back into its original oral form. It's the kerygma, this proclamation of the good news, the oral proclamation. And it has power in it. And this is Bonhoeffer's statement. So whatever you think about that, I went to these different clergy people essentially to ask them what they think about preaching. And um, it was fascinating. And, and what I did was I, I, you know, I put all these clips together. This is way back in the VHS days, so I was quite amazed at my editorial abilities. Pete, you would have been as well. Um, and so I put all these together and I showed them to my class. But there, there were some great ones. There was one, and I can say it here because we know, this Episcopal priest. He was a funny person. I liked him a lot. But he was by far the most cynical human being I'd ever met in my life, which is what sort of struck me as funny because he was just so so thoroughly unhappy about everything. Uh, and I would invite him over the house, and he was he was great for a laugh. Um, but he says to me, he says, Joe, you know how sometimes when you get up on Sunday morning and you walk up into the pulpit and you see all those faces and you just think to yourself, I wish you would all just go away. Oh. <gasps> I gasp. I'm like, no, John, I've never actually felt that. I've, I've ne- and when I played that in my class of seminary students, you should have heard them. Oh, how could somebody say such a thing? Jesus looks upon the crowd and he doesn't say, I wish you would go away. He has compassion on them. He sees their needs and he seeks to meet their needs, to heal their sick. And to take time to give to them. Listen to me. God cares about what we care about. Not just the big things, but the little things. I remember this woman, her name was Joyce, and and she was um she was an advocate. She was an advocate for righteousness in the world. And um and one of the things that she was uh, advocating one time was at the Ohio legislature. She was going there to make a plea to to basically outlaw pornography. And so she goes to there. She's making a a a um a presentation before the the general assembly. And she gets there and her glasses broke and she lost she lost the little screw that holds one of the arms on. And she thought, she says, I, I prayed, Lord, 
I cannot go in there without glasses because I won't be able to see. And I can't go in there with broken glasses because, I mean, they already think I'm a fool. Would you help me find this screw? And she said, and I looked down, and right there, sort of nestled in the seat of the, of the passenger seat next to me, right in the crease but between the, the folds of fabric, there it was, shining bright like a diamond. And she said, I picked it up and, and was able to fix my glasses enough and go in. I love that story because I have a million of those. Little things matter to God. They matter to God because they matter to us. I remember the day my son was going to, his, my oldest son was getting his, his driver's license, couldn't find his social security card anywhere. And of course, when you're 16 and you're on your way to take the test and get your license, there is no bigger moment in your life. Up to that point, this is as big and as good as it gets, and we couldn't find them anywhere. Couldn't find this, this social security card. And I said to him, we should pray about it. Oh, Dad, this is no time for a sermon. We have, we have, we have big things to do here. I said, will you stop and pray with me? He did. About a minute went by and all of a sudden it just occurred to me. I had, I had worn this jacket a year ago and for some reason it was, you know, I had to go to some place and I stuck his social security card in my pocket. I said, it's in that it's in that light blue uh, uh, jacket of mine in the, in the closet. We opened it up, unzipped it, and there it was. He was so thrilled. God cares about little things because God cares about what we care about. He has compassion on us and cares about even the little stuff. There's enough compassion. There's enough time. There are enough resources. God has plenty. John the Baptist dies at this lavish party, and then you get out here in the wilderness, and there's not enough food. <laughs> the disciples say to Jesus, "Send them away. Tell these people to go away." It was the the John Dews, uh, uh you know, command: get these people out of here. Send them away, so that they can go buy food for themselves. Let them fend for themselves in the towns and villages. Go buy food. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Listen, this story appears in all four Gospels. And in two Gospels, there are two stories about the feeding of the multitudes. There's only one Good Samaritan passage (laughs) in the Bible. It's in Luke's Gospel. There's only one Prodigal Son passage is in Luke's Gospel. This appears six times. You know what? Even Joe, who's as daft as they get, you know, just thick-headed. And This gets through to me. That Jesus provides. Send them away. Tell them to go buy their own food. No, you give them something to eat. Well, as it turns out, we rifled through the pantry. And here's what we come up with. Um, we come up with a few loaves of, of bread and a couple fish. There were 13 of them. I did the math. They get 0.38 loaves of bread each. I kind of imagine like a French loaf, you know, like a little small. They get a third. Each one gets a third of a loaf of bread. And since they're only two fish, they only get 0.15 fish a piece. That's like a that's like a piece of sushi, right? I mean, you're getting like almost nothing. A little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. Give them what you have. And what does Jesus do? He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. Have we heard this before somewhere? Does this ring bells at all? And all of a sudden, this this multiplicity factor happens. And everybody eats, 
and is satisfied, Matthew says. And then he sends them to gather up the pieces. There are 12 disciples. How many baskets do they gather up? (laughs) Yeah, one for each, don't they? There's plenty of food. There's always enough. What can you do? What, what, how much do you need? We don't need the, the party of, of Herod. Just our daily bread. Just pray that. Just, just seek that. And God will always provide. One last story. When I was a, a, um, a student, it's a promise that's not that good, really that deep. It might be two extra stories, but at least one more story. When I was a, a pastor of this little parish in, in rural Kentucky, and maybe I've, I've told a couple of you this, and if I have, pretend like it's the first time you heard it. But one of the, the things that I did in like the first, I don't know, a few months that I was there, the church was a Methodist church. And it had a bunch of Baptist hymnals and a mismatch of hymnals as really old Methodist hymnals from the 60s and, and, you know, Baptist hymnals and whatever. And I really wanted the church to have all Methodist hymnals because in their Methodist hymnal there was the liturgy for Holy Eucharist, which is the liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer. And they didn't know it. And I wanted to teach it. And, and I knew that if I had it in the hymnal, well, then it's hard to kind of get away from that. This is our tradition. And, and so well, I was really kind of pushing for that. But to buy new hymnals for this church to fill it up, they would have taken um, about $1,400. They needed a 100 of these hymnals, and they were $14 a piece. And so I had to go to this church vestry, and we had no money. I don't mean like a little bit of money. I mean like no money. Week to week paying me was an adventure. Um, this is how how you know slim the circumstances were there. And um, And I said to them, I think that we should raise this money and buy these hymnals. And they were sweet people. And they said, if you think this is what we need to do, we'll do it. And so we did a little fundraiser of people. And, you know, uh, every week kind of went through, hey, we've we've done this. And and people pledged and they gave. And we were just about there. We were right on the cusp of getting our uh, enough money to buy all these hymnals. I was so excited. And I don't know how God speaks to you, but... Here's how the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I have these thoughts, you know, these impulses that I some usually think are just mine. And so then I shove them out of my head. You know, a thought comes to me and I don't think it's the Lord necessarily. I just kind of push it away. And sometimes they come back. And when it is of the Lord, it will not go away. It is persistent. It's one of those thoughts that just will not go away. And I I try and sometimes I talk to people and they'll, oh, whatever. I had this thought. You don't just need hymnals, you need Bibles too. And I thought, Lord, we don't, we have no money. We're almost already, we almost got to this amount to raise these, um, you know, to buy these hymn books and, and it's going to be so good. We have a Psalter in there and it's, you need Bibles too. I did the math. Well, we could only do like, you know, a third of them. I mean, I get, like put a, a, a Bible between two hymnals. And I still did the math and it's almost $600, $580 or something like that. And because it wouldn't leave me, I had to go back to my vestry and ask them again. I think the Lord wants us to buy Bibles, too. <laughs> and they looked at me like I had two heads. Um, you know, we're almost there. I said, I know. And I quoted Psalm 50, where God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hillsides. Do you think I need your help? You know, you know, I said to them, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hillside. He has enough resources for us. I promise. I, 
He'll come through. And they said, okay, we'll do it. If I'm lying, I'm dying. A week later, and I'm so stupid, it takes me forever to catch this. A week later, I get a call from a farmer. Now, this church is out in the middle of nowhere, and so there's a farm everywhere around. A farmer who's right across the road from my parish in, in, in Kentucky calls me on the phone, and he says, are you the minister at the Methodist Church? I said, I am. He says, I have a problem. I wonder if you could help me out with it. I said, I'll do my best. He said, I have a, um, I have a, a, a what do you call them, a, a cattle, I have a group. What do they call those? A herd. That's, what, that's the word I'm looking for. I have a herd, of, a herd of cattle, and in this herd, there is a steer that doesn't belong to me. And I have called every farm around here, and nobody will own it. And it has a tag I don't recognize, and I've done everything I can to figure out whose this is, and, and, and it doesn't belong to anybody. And I would not feel right about keeping it. Could I donate it to the church? And I thought, well, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> you know, we put it out back, you know, um, so uh, I'll get to that in a minute. And, and, and the guy says, no, you could you could um, you could find somebody in your church who would take it to market and and sell it. And then whatever money that came from the sale of that of that steer, you could, you know, keep in your church. I said, well, I'm sure we do. have. You know, we're in the farm. We, of course, we have farmers. And, and so I said, yes, we'll make arrangement, pick it up on Saturday. I call Abby. I said, you're not going to believe it. Somebody donated a steer. She said, Joe, we can't have a steer in the backyard. I said, I know, but we're not going to. We're going to sell it. And she said, oh, okay. And the fellow comes and he picks it up and I go with him and I go to this, this, this auction on Saturday morning and they take our black steer in there and he goes up for auction and we sold him for $587. What do you need? What resource do you need? God can provide it. Maybe it's not food. Maybe it's not money. But it's something. And you think that there's no way it can happen. There's enough. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hillside. He owns everything. There is nothing that is not His. Jesus is enough. Always, always enough. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.